You are trapped. You are trapped here. Oh, my gosh. This is like a church child torture. We keep you in service. We don't give you toys to play with. There's no snack partway unless you prepared that for yourself. No, I'm kidding. Family worship is such an important part. Uh, one of the values that we try to hold on to here at the church, which is doing ministry and worship together as a family. And it's one of those things, if you've ever heard of uh, something called sticky faith, how do we impart our faith and our experience of God to our children? I can't think of anything more important than preparing the next generation for what it is that they know and experience and value as worshipers of God. And so as they do that, this is part of how we embrace that and try to engage that and include them uh, in worship, right? Not in an old school, like stuck in the pew, wear your Sunday best, be quiet, right? Kind of thing. Maybe some of you grew up with that. Uh, but it's more about saying, hey, you're here and we welcome you here. And this church is for you, right? Not a kid's service, an adult service, and a different service, traditional service, contemporary service. We're really kind of chopped up in our ministries, most of the time, this is our way of saying, no, this is actually for everybody. And we want you to be a part of this. And we want your feedback, too. I'll just open it up for that. This may be a whole other can of worms. But if you're here and you're a younger person, right, you know who you are. If you've seen a TikTok, <laughs> you're a younger person, right? If that's you and you're here in the worship service and you're thinking to yourself, man, you know what would make this way better? I want to hear about it, right? I want to hear about it. Even if it means, like, if you could not be so boring, right? Could you just be a little more interesting? Can you be a little cooler? I'll do my best. We're trying to improve this, but this is really for you guys. So I want to hear feedback. So fill out a comment card, write me a note, send me an email, put it in a TikTok and tag me in it, right? <laughs> Whatever you need to do. Whatever you need to do. We want to know how to make this worship experience more significant for you because it's important. We don't do them that often, but when we do, we want to make sure that it's meaningful and that it somehow uh, holds value for you, that you're catching on or feeling as though uh, you're being given the opportunity to catch on to what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it, right? Rather than like, hey, just come ahead and service and, and be quiet and, and uh, you know, eat your Cheerios. Okay, here we go. So we're in this series, very exciting Man, I tell you, nothing more scintillating than the Lord's Prayer, right? Actually, I'll be honest, I nerded out a ton this week. I pray this prayer a lot, uh, and I found some new things in there that kind of surprised me. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, looking at something that you've seen like a bajillion times, and then all of a sudden you see it again, and it catches you. are like, I never saw that before. Right? I was talking with somebody earlier about old movies, watching old movies, and you catch details right, that you didn't see the first time that you saw that movie or the first 12 times you saw that movie. You didn't catch something, and that's kind of what happened for me this week as I revisited something that uh, has been a, a, like a recitation, a thing that you just pray or think about from memory over and over again. I discovered something inside of it that I thought, I thought was really cool. 
that I had not seen before. So I'm just going to nerd out and share that with you today. That's kind of the goal, right? Last week, Pastor Tim talked about um, the beginning of the prayer, Our Father, and really how we think about this prayer from the context of knowing the father-child relationship that we have with God, this beautiful, beautiful thing, knowing that we can trust God and that we can come before him in the most uh, intimate way is an awesome, awesome way to walk into this prayer. And if you didn't catch last week's sermon, it was amazing. I encourage you to go back and revisit that. Today, as we get into the Lord's Prayer, our word is worship. And this is like a $10 word, right, in the church. This is like a lot of, you know, you hear worship, you go, oh, yeah, okay, worship. We just did that. Or I know that word because we used it 17 times in, in the songs that we sang, you know, a moment ago. Okay, I got that word. I think there's more to it. I'd like to unpack that word as we get into the next part of the prayer. But as we prepare, maybe it's a good opportunity to refresh ourselves on what the Lord's Prayer is. If you haven't prayed this prayer or seen it, uh, we're going to make this sort of our weekly practice through the series is to pray this prayer together. So can we throw that up? And it's this. And this I have to read it because there's a bunch of different versions and I've been hanging out with a bunch of Catholics and theirs is slightly different. Our Father in heaven, let's pray this together. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's the part that my Catholic friends leave off. I always mess that up when I'm praying with them. The these, the thous, and the thuses. But we catch this word. I don't know if you saw it. uh, In verse 9. Hallowed be your name. It's a weird word. We'll unpack it in a second, right? Hallowed be your name. As we pray this prayer, Jesus tells us that once we figure out the father-child relationship, the very first thought that he wants us to hold in our hearts and in our minds is this weird phrase, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And when we see the word uh, worship in scripture and we tie that to the word hallowed, and we'll do that in a second, the word for worship can mean many different things, right? It's that $10 word. When we think of worship collectively, there's worship as community, right? Worship in church, right? Most of us, maybe when we think about worshiping God, do you worship God? Yeah, I go to church on Sunday and we do that worship thing, right? Worship can be thought of as service, right? That my life is a living sacrifice, my spiritual act of worship might be a passage you're familiar with in Romans. There's many different ways to express and articulate this word that we capture as worship. But the one that we're looking at in the prayer as we think about worship means literally to bend over or to bow down. So when the scriptures talk mostly about worshiping God and the people worshiping him, it literally means they bowed down. They got down on their hands and knees. Sometimes they prostrate themselves. It means they lay flat on the ground on their bellies like a worm, right? And it's a picture of what we might describe as grateful submission. I think of God as my heavenly father. 
and I hallow his name, and I worship him in grateful submission. If we see God for who he is, that loving father that Tim described last week, and we hallow his name, it means that we come to him in an attitude, sometimes a physical posture, but mostly an attitude of grateful submission. And we'll unpack that as we think about what it means to hallow. Hallow is a weird word. Uh, It's an old English term. And it strikes me as interesting that the translators of the new, uh, the new International Version, right, that are, they're translating this, and the whole purpose of the New International Version is to update it and to make it, like, cooler than, like, the old English. And yet, they come across this word, hallowed be your name, right? Used to be hallowed be thy name. And they said, that's a cool word. We're going to keep that word because we can't think of another word that's cooler than hallowed. Right? So we're going to hold on to that word. It literally means to treat something as sacred or treat something as ultimate, to make it the top of our list. Right? If you look it up in the dictionary, it says to make holy or set apart for holy use. Right? We're hallowing something. To respect it greatly in non-religious terms, to make something the ultimate thing, to make it the supreme beauty, to make it the the number one uh, item that we have on our list. The Old Testament describes this as fear of the Lord. It's kind of an interesting term. It's like I'm holding God as so holy that I'm going to think about him and think about his interests first. Everything else comes a distant second, right? So Jesus says that this needs to come first. Find out who you're praying to, God the Father, and then when you figure that part out, you need to approach them with a sense of sacredness. Lifting God up and thinking of him first and holding his name and his identity above all other things. Because worship, friends, is not just about how we pray. It's not just about what we do Uh, in service or in church together, but it's actually about our whole lives. It's part of our whole identity as we bear the name of Christ, right? Quick illustration of this. Some of you have heard this before, but this kind of came to mind. I remember when I, in 1991, I moved back to Korea as a pretty Americanized guy, right? Living in Northern California, you know, just being a kid, right? Didn't really understand or identify with my Koreanness other than you got to take your shoes off. You know, we have a kimchi fridge. Uh, if you don't know what that is, ask me afterwards. You know, we kind of lived in both worlds, right? And my parents were unusual in the sense that they came to the United States in the earlies. They came here in the 60s uh, as high school and college students, which was early immigration for their generation. So they were also very Americanized, Right? My dad played golf, he wanted to drive a BMW, he spoke English, he loved baseball, you know, it's the whole nine. He was very Americanized, and if you met him, you'd kind of go, oh yeah, well that's why why Doug is the way he is, because he fell out of this tree of these early immigrants. But when I moved back to Korea in 91, uh, I had to learn this whole new uh, nomenclature, this whole other way of naming people, right? 
because you have to figure out who's who. We got to meet the entire, uh, my dad's side of the family, which was vast and, and large, and everybody was mostly older than me. So I had to learn who all these people were because I had to figure out where I fit into the family system, right? And there's all these complex names. There's a naming system for aunties and uncles of, of the older aunt and the older uncle on your dad's side, on your mom's side. It's a whole sort of deal, and it gave me this massive headache. So I'd walk around, and I'd introduce myself, right, as a typical American kid. I'd walk up. Some of you are going to cringe. Hi, my name's Doug. Right? I did just like that because I wanted to be strong, respectful, right? And you know what they would do? They would look at me like, who are you, right? Because I'll tell you what you don't do to your elders in an Asian country if you're a younger person, and I was 15 at the time, is walk up and stick out your hand, look them in the eye, deepen your voice, puff up your chest, and say, hi, my name is Douglas. You don't do that, right? This is an honorific culture. And so they'd look at me, and I'd have my moment of embarrassment. If my dad was there, he'd smack me, right, on the side of the head. He'd tell me to back up. And they'd ask me, not who are you, but who's your father? Right? Tony remembers this story. Who's your father? Right? And then I would identify myself. Oh, I'm so-and-so's son. And then they'd go, oh! And they'd either, like, have disgust and embarrassment and shame, very common response at that time, you know, or they'd welcome me in, right, depending on how well they knew each other, right, the whole pecking order thing had to be figured out, and so I had to figure out for the next three years, I wasn't Doug or Douglas or whatever, I was my father's son, and that was the name that I was identified by. Nobody knew my name. To this day, they don't know my name, right? Because my name, in their eyes, is irrelevant. Do you see it? Culturally speaking, I think if we're talking first century era with Jesus, our names are not as important as who we descend from. Are you with me? Our identities are not bound up, bound up in just who I am all by my lonesome floating in the ether of the universe so that I have to introduce myself to all these people so that they can get to know me. I am tied to a lineage and to a heritage and to an identity that precedes me. And when we come to the Heavenly Father in this way and we call him Father and we use the word Abba and we say Daddy to God... Something my Jewish friends would never do, by the way, my friends. Right? We get to call him Abba because of Jesus. We get to call God, whose name is so holy it cannot be spoken in Jewish culture. He can only be referred to as the Lord. Right? We get to call him Daddy because of Jesus. And he says, when you do that, I want you to remember where you came from. And I want you to hallow the name. I want you to hold the name in your heart. So that when you speak and when you pray and when you introduce yourself and then you go out into the world, you are a name bearer 
of your heavenly Father. Right? That's what we're getting after here. So much more than just a prayer. So much more than just a recitation. Right? So we're asked the question, if worship and hallowing the name is what life is all about, then worship is essential. It's absolutely necessary. It's primary, which just means it comes first, right? There's something that makes it necessary for us to keep this at the top of the list and remind ourselves of this all the time. And then maybe we'll touch a little bit on how to do this, right? We'll get a little practical in terms of how we unpack uh, how it is that we accomplish this worship, this um, uh, kind of grateful submission in our own hearts, right? So let's start off. Essential. It's essential. Jesus doesn't tell us it's just important, but he tells us it's inevitable. This is absolutely inevitable. Worship is something that we do each and every day because something occupies the center of your heart, whether you like it or not. We are created and designed as human beings to be worshipers, right? There is a reason that every civilization... Modern, ancient, reached, unreached, every people group in the world, whether they are living in complete isolation or whether they live in connection and modernity, worship something. Right? Isn't that an interesting fact about humanity? Left in complete isolation, right, in the middle of nowhere, we create gods to worship. We name things and we call them gods and we worship them out of our own need, our fundamental need to worship, right? It's a fascinating reality about human beings. Every civilization has some kind of spiritual belief, right? Completely separate This is not colonization. This is not from evangelism. We're talking about unreached people groups create their own spirituality out of an innate desire to reach out into the spiritual and into the eternal and to worship something, however legitimate or however fabricated it might be, because something always must occupy the center of the human heart. We've got to have something there. Going backwards to uh, the message from a couple of weeks ago, um, Jesus talks about hypocritical prayers, hypocritical prayers back in verses 7 and 8 of our passage, right? He says this, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans or people who are, uh, have a different religion, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words, Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So, you know, hypocrisy is another one of those, you know, sort of $10 words. Hypocrisy is when we are not being consistent with what we believe. And a hypocritical prayer is a kind of prayer that maybe isn't consistent or authentic with what we believe. Right? So, simple example. When people pray in public, right, and they want to pray these beautiful, big, ornate prayers. This is a fascinating thing in pastor land, by the way. I think Tim talked about this. We pray these big, flowery, ornate prayers because we want to be perceived as spiritual people. Right? 
But if you take away that public nature of the prayer, then we have to ask the question, what does the prayer look like when there's no microphone or video camera or recording or other people watching? Does the prayer change, right? Because the public nature of the prayer alters the way we pray it, making it not as authentic to what we actually believe about prayer itself, right? Creating the inconsistency, right? Something is adjusted inside of me because it's public, because I want to be seen, because I want to be heard or perceived in a particular way, right? Are you with me? This is hypocrisy, discontinuity, disconnection from what it is that we're actually trying to accomplish in the prayer itself, right? So we have these ultimate concerns inside of us where some things bubble up to the top and become important in certain circumstances and other things kind of fall by the wayside, right? True thing, as long as there are tests in school, there will be prayer in school, right? That old joke, right? It's amazing how spiritual we become when there's something that we desperately need to have happen, right? Isn't that an interesting reality for us? I face this all the time. I'll walk into the hospital. People ask me, like, hey, do you get to visit everybody in the hospital? I work as a hospital chaplain part-time. And people ask the question, they say, oh, well, they're not religious. They're not a religious person, so you probably don't need to visit them. Like, oh, I love irreligious people. Let's go hang out with them. And you walk into the room, and I've had some of the most profound conversations about God and prayer with people who don't identify themselves as religious in the formal way, right? But when you're in the hospital bed and you're facing uncertainty, let me tell you, people start to become really spiritual in those moments, And if you walk in and it fascinates me every time, I don't know how I would behave if I'm in the bed someday, if this odd-looking chaplain comes into my room and asks if I need any care or support, am I going to ask them for prayer? Well, the answer is, you bet you will. You will, because it's full-court press. And we'll fire off prayers to anyone and anything that we could figure it out because all we want to do is get out of there. So as long as there's tests in school, there will be prayer. As long as there are people in the hospital, we're going to be exploring our spirituality in those critical moments. Because we pray when we've got trouble, things get better, maybe we stop praying. What might be going on? We ask that question. Uh, This guy, Archbishop William Temple, said this, Religion is what you do with your solitude. And I love this statement because it's really provocative. And all he means is, when you're alone, when no one's looking, or when you think no one's looking, that's when the truth comes out, right? I mean, that's a true statement. When you're by yourself and you're alone with your thoughts, that's what you truly worship emerges out of your heart, right? One other person put it this way. It says, where does your mind go when it has no place in particular that it needs to be? So if your brain has free time 
and you're not focusing on something specific, where does it wander off to? Right? And that might be a place where you start to reveal what it is that I care most deeply about as it interrupts my thoughts from the day. Have you ever sat and tried to be quiet? Some of us are starting every once in a while to try to kickstart your, your faith and you try to sit and you try to be quiet and there are these books that kind of have these daily prayers and one of the first things that it does is it asks you to sit quietly for two whole minutes. Right? If I asked you to sit here quietly for two whole minutes, what do you think would happen to you? Right? You would explode. <laughs> right? Or you would fall asleep. Some of you are on the verge already. Right? You'd fall asleep, and it's okay. If you need to take a nap, it's fine. Right? This is a welcoming place. These chairs are very comfortable. Rest your eyes. Right? Two minutes. You sat for two whole minutes. You know what happens to me when I sit for two whole minutes trying to be quiet? One, there's no quiet place. I have a home with three girls and a very talkative dog. <laughs> but if, if I'm so fortunate to find a quiet place, deafening silence, are you with me? And you sit quietly, only with your own thoughts bouncing around in your head, right? It's so difficult. One, I might fall asleep, depending on what position I'm in, right? Do this sitting up, by the way. Very difficult. You do it lying down, it's game over, right? <laughs> but you sit quietly for two minutes. What bubbles up? Bing, 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 bing. If I tried to do that right now, you'd be like, I got a grocery list. We've got a sports game to get to. What are we going to have for lunch? Right? I wonder if they'll have snacks after church today. Yes, we do, by the way. On and on and on, because we have all of these interruptions. And somebody told me once, they said, Doug, instead of trying to remove all the distractions, this is actually really helpful, because our minds are always moving. Instead of trying to remove all of the distractions, he says, Doug, I want you to try to pray your way through them and become curious about your own thoughts. Fascinating little experiment, right? If something is bouncing around in your head, and it's a list, and it's a to-do, or it's a, gosh, I better not forget that, or it's a preoccupation, might be something bigger that's looming over you, right? I know that's been that way for me. I've got a blood draw tomorrow morning at 8.15, and I've got to find out what my blood sugar looks like, right? <laughs> And my doctor's like, man, you're right on the border, Doug. If you don't take care of this business, I'm going to have to medicate you. Right? I'm not a fan of this. My dad was diabetic. My grandpa was diabetic. I don't want to be a diabetic. And so it woke me up last night. And in the middle of the night, I stopped and I became curious. And I said, Doug, what, why are you so worried? Why are you holding this so greatly in your heart? What do you fear? And you become curious about the things that are preoccupying your thoughts. Even if it's something as simple as a task. And saying, why am I so driven by the lists? Why is my, how much of my life is motivated and animated by checking the boxes of the things that I must do today? And is this something that I am slowly becoming altered by? Am I becoming a worshiper of my list? And the accomplishing of tasks, is this beginning to dominate 
the landscape of my daily living? And is that consistent with who I pray I wish to be? Right? Is there continuity there? Discontinuity? Does it match? Something along the way is informing what we believe. Do you see it? Something must always occupy the center of our hearts, and it is not always God, friends. I'll be honest. It's not always God. We're human beings, and the things that move to the center of our hearts can shift and to move, right? We become animated and excited about different things in our lives, and we can get really riled up about them, and they can become the center. It's true, right? I don't know that that's full-blown idolatry. I'm not here to get heavy-handed about it. I think it's just a reality of how the human heart operates and functions, which is why I think that this prayer is so simple and elegant and beautiful and necessary because it informs us. Ask the question, who is your father and do you hallow the name? Do you hallow the name? Because we spend our time in secret our prayer time hallowing something. And it's important to know what that thing might be at any particular moment. And we all do it. And it shapes our prayer life. Ultimately, it can shape our souls, shape our identities if we allow it to and we welcome that. It can move in us in ways that are unintended or not desired. This is the secret worship life we're talking about who we are on the inside versus who we put on display, right? And I think when we get down to it, this is, this is what we need to address as Christians, who we really are, right, when the face comes off, who we truly are inside of ourselves, and can we live that way? Can we pray out of that space, and can we move and find our being out of that place? That's what worship is. Not an activity, not a task, not a a gathering, but it's a way of being within ourselves. Really key. So, worship is a way of life. It is necessary. It is essential. It is inevitable. Something must occupy the center of our hearts at all times. And the second thing is that worship is primary. It must happen first. Right? It must happen first. I've got to hallow the name first. And it's not mechanically first because it matches. It sounds so nice and flowery. Our Father, art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It sounds so nice and rhythmical, right? That's not why. It's first organically. And, and this is where it gets a little nerdy. This is the thing I found out that was really great, right? So if you get anything, get this. Otherwise, you know, just watch something on, on TikTok. It'd be great, right? It's not formulaic. Worship is the context for all the other aspects of our conversation. Worship is the context for how I see myself and how I see the world around me. And if that is not correct, if that's not sort of settled, then I end up with what? A distorted view of myself and a distorted view of the world around me, which is going to lead to some kind of weird dysfunction, right? It's going to be a broken relationship. If I have a distorted view of myself and a distorted view of the world around me, and I interact with that world out of that sense of self, then things are going to get kind of messy, right? 
it's going to get uh, pretty complicated. Imagine this way, something simple. How many of you wear glasses? I can see a lot of you, but a lot of you are hiding with contacts on. How many of you wear glasses? You all wear glasses, right? So I just started wearing glasses uh, recently because I can't see things, you know, all the time, right? You get the bill. I used to laugh at my parents about this. Now the shoe's on the other foot. It's incredible. And you get the bill, and you're trying to read it, and you have to start, you know, your arms are only so long, and you tilt your head back. You try to get as much distance as possible, right? And then eventually you hand it to your kid. I haven't gotten that far yet, but I'm, I'm going to get there, right? What does that say? And I'm going to hand it to them and make them do the math. We wear these glasses. And I remember as a kid, my mom used to ask me. She had these television-watching glasses. I wish I had a photo of this. I'm wearing a muumuu. I'm like seven years old. I've got a muumuu on. I've got my mom's glasses on. It's a fantastic photo. If I find it, I'll share it with you. And I put these glasses on. My mom is legally blind without her glasses, so these are, these are honking glasses. This was the 80s, right? So they were rad looking. And they were these kind. Remember the glasses that were bigger on top than they were on the bottom? Like some of you wear glasses and I can see them. They hang below your, like down past your nose and they're big rim. These were big rim glasses and they were like this. And they were higher above your nose than they were below your nose. It was in for a little while. It was really cool. And I would grab her glasses and I would put them on and I would try to walk. I would just grab them from her room. She's like, Dougie, go get my television-watching glasses. I knew exactly what they were. I'd run upstairs, grab her glasses, put the mumu on. I don't know why I did that. I put the mumu on, and I would put the glasses on, and I would try to walk back down the stairs. Very treacherous. I would have to use my mind's eye because I could not see anything. It completely distorted my vision, right? Imagine for ourselves, we enter into prayer, we see God as Father, but we don't hallow the name. We don't hold God and His name and His priorities and His reputation and His desires for my life as ultimate. I instead hold my own things out of whatever is in the center of my heart at that particular moment, and I hold those things up above, right? And I'm wanting after those things. My prayers then, i.e. my interaction with the world around me and with God himself, get twisted, right? And here's what happens. Here's how you know we're having struggle with this. When God doesn't answer the prayer in exactly the way that you prayed it, what happens? You get so mad, right? You throw yourself a good little spiritual tantrum because God didn't answer the prayer the way that you wanted the prayer answered. When we don't hallow the name, we get distorted and our whole heart gets tied to the thing that occupies its center. Now, some of you will remember this. Kids, talking to you guys, right? The last time you asked for something, let me know if this has happened in your life. I know it happened in my life multiple times, right? So I'm not pointing the finger at anybody but myself. But I'm asking to see if you have any familiarity with what I described. Have you ever asked for something 
I remember when I was a kid, I asked for a new bike because my bike was, was, it was not good, right? It was not in good shape. It was pretty beat up. Not granted, I didn't take good care of it, but I needed a new bike. I remember asking for a bike, right? I remember asking for a bike, going, Mom, Dad, can I get a new bike? Da, 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 da. I, asked, I made all these reasons. Look at this bike, and it's, it's not safe. And da, da, da. I came up with all these different reasons. And my parents looked at me and said, no. No, you get to ride, you know, the hoopty bike you have right now, right? And I remember just falling to pieces. I remember throwing a tantrum to end all tantrums. You guys never get me anything I want. You've never given me anything I've ever asked for. Sound familiar? You don't love me, right? I wish I was never born. That was the end. You can't really go past that, right? (laughs) I wish I was never born. And I would stomp, thank you, Donna. I would stomp around the house, and I'd be, you know, so angry, right? And my parents would just watch. They would just observe me in my natural habitat, right? (laughs) And they would just watch, and they would sometimes, it would get so, like, comical, they would laugh at me, and it would just make it worse. See? You don't care about my feelings. And on and on it would go, right? Maybe you've had something similar happen, right? We end up getting a distorted view of ourselves because what we hollow takes over, right? And in my young, maybe 10-year-old self at the time, I hollowed my bicycle, a new bicycle, right? Because maybe somebody I knew got a new bicycle, And I didn't feel as cool because my bicycle was old and junky in my eyes, right? So I hollowed the new bicycle and that if I could only get the new bicycle, then I would be okay. I'd be okay until the new bicycle became the old bicycle. Are you with me? And the vicious cycle would start over again. Because whatever occupies the center of my heart at that particular moment is what I absolutely must have. And it distorted and in that moment really wrecked my view of myself because I embarrassed myself <laughs> so badly. And it created some tension with mom and dad who, who laughed at me and thought that was pretty funny. Right? So we get stuck, friends. We get stuck in these places because we have distorted views of ourselves. And I have this conversation over and over again, both as a pastor and as a chaplain, with people who are trapped hollowing something more than God. And it's not just our stuff, friends. Sometimes it's our mistakes that we hollow more than God. And that sounds really backwards, doesn't it? But we do it. Because we, mis- we make mistakes as human beings, we hold regret, and we hold guilt, and we hold shame, and we hold those things, and we hallow them more than the grace and forgiveness and beauty of God. And friends, when, when I do that, when I hollow my brokenness and my sin, I cannot allow God to forgive me, even though God has already done that, I still live inside the shame and the embarrassment and the brokenness of my sin, even though I've been set free. Have you ever felt that way? I hollow my sin. And I'll tell you what we need to do, friends. 
We need to demote our broken view of ourselves. We need to demote our own sinfulness. And we need to promote the beauty of God and the sacredness of God and the hollowness of God. And it's not just us, it's other people. Other people have wronged us, right? The hurts and the hang-ups and the sins of other people bleed into our lives all the time. And people do stuff to us and we're like, mm, bothers me, right? Somebody says something, somebody does something, and we just can't get over it. Man, I'm just stuck. I can't, I can't do it. Every time I see that person, my blood boils, and all I see is the thing that they did, and all I hear is the thing that they said, and, and I'm stuck in this place of brokenness because I hallow that other person's sinfulness more than I hollow God's love for them and his forgiveness for them. Do you see it? I make that the ultimate thing and I can't remove it from them. It's the scarlet letter, friends, right? Hester Prynne all over again. We're wearing it or we're placing it on other people, right? And when I do that, at its, at its fundamental level, I'm hollowing their brokenness over the beauty of God himself. I need to demote those things that are taking the place of God's goodness and his beauty, his sacredness. And I need to promote God into that place. And I've got to do this all the time. This is an ongoing exchange, friends. This is not something that I'm going to do today and be done with it. No, something else is going to creep and crawl into the center of my being because we're human beings. That's why we do it over and over and over again. And we've got to be okay with that. It's okay. Keep working, forgive yourself, get over yourself, demote yourself. Are you with me? Demote your stuff, right? Demote your issues. And it happens in every walk of life, right? We could be on the sports field, we make a mistake, we miss a pass, we miss a shot, we boot a ball. All of a sudden, we're wearing the letter. Oh my gosh, everybody's looking at me. And we have to get over ourselves because everybody's not looking at you. They actually don't care. <laughs> surprise, surprise, you, number 11, not that important. Do I want to hit the ball at you? Absolutely. But you're going to be okay. Right? We've got to demote ourselves in some ways. Recognize we're not that important. God is the one we should hollow. Not our sin, not other people's sin, not other people's mistakes, not other people's brokenness, right? And we pray the prayer over and over again. Worship prepares us for the other conversations that happen in the prayer. For forgiveness, for confession, for the relieving of debts, all that stuff flows out of an appropriate view of ourselves, of others. God, our Heavenly Father, we've got to put him at the highest place because all of the other prayers, confession, how we see ourselves, petition, how we pray for others in the world around us, all flow out of a healthy, appropriate, sober view of ourselves before the Lord. Let me talk for one second. Like, where did this come from, right? 
This is a fascinating point. Imagine you're at the store, right? Toy store. Are there toy stores anymore? I don't think so. There are no toy stores. Okay. So history lesson, guys. There used to be these stores that only sold toys. Toys are us. I'm not talking about Walmart. I'm not talking about a toy section at Target. Imagine if Target were an entire store filled with toys, right? That would be mind-blowing, right? Whoa, that's right. KB Toys, right? Toys are us. FAO Schwartz. I don't even think they're open anymore. They all closed down, right? Imagine if you could go, excuse me, go into a building designed for you. And you can touch things and play with things, and no one's supposed to get mad at you. It's like Disneyland, but surrounded by toys, right? Nothing's free. You still got to pay for stuff, but you could go in there and check everything out. It was the coolest place. Imagine you're taking your kid into that mind-blowing space, and they look around, and their eyes are open, and they're looking at stores and stores and stores. Wow, it's amazing. And you reach down to them, and you say, you can have none of this. Imagine what that might do to the little child's frail, emotional psyche, right? Broken. Brokenness, right? You don't love me. You never loved me. I wish I was never born, right? I think this is the thing that the serpent wanted to place into the human heart. Because you remember what happened in the garden? You guys probably know this story, right? We're hanging out in the garden. Everything in this garden is yours, free to eat from. You can have whatever you want, Adam, Eve. This is your spot, except that tree. You see where I'm going? You can have anything you want but that tree. And what does the serpent say? He says, oh, man. You know that's the best tree, right? You know that tree. Man, I know why he doesn't want you to have that tree. Because if you had that tree, then, man, you know, this place would go bonkers. You don't even know what you're missing. And he plants a seed of doubt. He said, if God doesn't want you to have that tree, then... He really, this, none of this belongs to you. You with me? If you can't have the one thing, maybe you can't have anything. Right? But if you could have it all, then you could have it all. And you could be all. And maybe you could become like God himself. Do you hear it? I'm planting the seed of doubt. It's either everything or it's nothing. I'm either going to get the bike or I've got nothing at all. And I wish I were never born. Or you give it to me and I put it in the center of my heart and I allow it to make me who I wanted to make me and it turns me into something else. Are you with me? He planted a seed of doubt in us, friends. He says, what do you put at the center of your heart? What do you worship? What do you long for? What do you meditate on? What do you pray about? Who do you pray to? What do you pray for? What do you don't pray for, right? 
And the list goes on and on. You see, this is not easy, right? This is not formulaic. I just pray the prayer, right? And, and we just move on. No, no, no. There's something deeper going on. I'm asking the question, what do you hallow? What do you hallow, friends? And so how do we do it? What do we do with this? How do we put God in his spot over and over again? I think we have to come back and say, man, I've got to seek first the kingdom, but I've got to pause and I've got to know my own heart. And there's no easy formula for this. I wish there were. I'd write a book. We'd make millions of dollars. Let's do it. Right? What is inside my heart? And for that, friends, you're just going to have to sit. Find a quiet space and sift your heart. Man, I don't even know what that means. Just start. Sit for two minutes. Do a little social experiment. Find a quiet place. Put earplugs in if you have to. Sit for two minutes. And I just write down what goes traipsing through your mind in that moment. And I'm not saying you worshiping that thing or idolizing that thing. Just become curious about what is happening and what is stirring inside of you. What are you thinking about right before you go to bed? What do you think about right when you get up in the morning? And just start thinking and meditating and becoming curious about those practices, right? And then you've got to Marie Kondo this thing. You've got to grab a hold of that, that thought that you've got or that thing that you wrote down, right? And you've got to go kind of like Jesus-style Marie Kondo. You've got to hold it. You've got to hold it. And say, where is this? What is this about? Why am I holding this? Why is this in my heart? Maybe even bring it before the Lord. Say, what is this about, God? Can you just talk to me about this thing? Because I'm not sure what it is. Or maybe you know, and you're scared to hold it because you kind of know. And you just got to hold on to it. Manage that thing, right, in some way. Ask for God's help. Ask for some accountability, right? Hold it in your heart. And then reorder your worship. It might be a behavior. It might be an activity. It might be a hierarchy of how you spend time and energy and money in your life. There might be something that's just taken over and it's pushing something else out. It's pushing God out of the picture. And you need to demote that thing. This is not that important to me. I'm going to spend less of myself on this and a little bit more on God. I'm going to give him that time. I'm going to give him that energy. And I'm going to catch myself the next time that thought or that thing tries to push its way into the center of my being. I'm going to go, no. That's inconsistent with who I say I want to be. And I'm asking for God's help to reorder my heart. And that, friends, is not simple, easy work. It's actually really hard, sacred work. I encourage you as you pray this prayer to just linger over these words, to hallow the name, and to allow his name to put itself in its rightful place and allow that to sort of inform everything else as it trickles in to the rest of your day and to yourself. It's not simple. I wish it were a task. I wish it were something that we could just do and be done with it. 
but it's not. It's a little bit of a lifetime work. But I invite you to hold that and become curious about your own hearts. Let's pray together.